Happy Valentine's Day. Okay. God is good. Let's never forget that. Let's open with a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, how great you are. We read of your love and faithfulness to the broken people of your church. Heavenly Father, we are those people. We are undeserving of your kindness and your generosity and your love. Your love is so much greater than the heavens. Heavenly Father, we are so undeserving. And we are overcome by how incredibly awesome you are. We know that even the greatest things that we can imagine of you are just figments of how much you really are. Lord, we are so lost without you. Our sin and our failure weigh us down as though we were the ones tied to the millstone and cast into the sea. We forget to look at you, Lord. Heavenly Father, come down this morning so that we do not fall short. Let us not follow after our own hearts, but to you, and only you, open our hearts. God, give us wisdom to heed the words of your prophet Isaiah here and to understand. Give us discernment, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I told a couple of, of you this morning about my, my story last night. Um, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning. The dogs are barking. Uh, we have uh, five dogs right now because our son brought his four. Our son and daughter-in-law dropped them off yesterday. and <clears throat> Liam comes rushing in, and I'm sound asleep. Wakes me out of a deep sleep. And so she had to repeat it like three times before I got it. There was a skunk in the backyard. And unfortunately, they had um, injured the skunk pretty badly. Um, the skunk is still in the backyard right now, um, not doing well. I, I think we're going to end up having call, to call animal control. And um, the two huskies just stink like you wouldn't believe. Um, it, and it. I thought our house was fairly well sealed up. It's not. And we've never had a skunk before. I didn't even know they were around. But uh, here it is. Amazing. Amazing. So I hope it's a, a male skunk. I hope it's not a mama skunk, because that means there's going to be babies that aren't going to survive as well. So, I'm really loving our going through Isaiah here. Isaiah has so much to tell us. And Isaiah keeps pointing us back to Jesus and pointing us to God. Today we're going to go over Isaiah 14, verse 23. Some of you were expecting 24 here. 23. I failed to include verse 23 last week. And so we're going to have to go back that one verse, cover that, and then we'll close out the oracle against Babylon. Okay. And we're going to go through uh, chapter 15, verse 9, which is the end of that chapter. And um, we'll move on to today's passage, which tells of three oracles from the Lord through Isaiah. These three oracles tell us of the fall of Assyria, the fall of Philistia, and the disaster that befalls Moab. And it's interesting how Isaiah treats Moab differently than the other two. And you'll, you'll catch this as we go through, and we're, we're going to talk about it. Um, he tells of how each of these three kingdoms will suffer. And each oracle is delivered most probably as a song or perhaps a poem. Enough of the background. Let's go ahead and, and get started. So going back to Babylon now, verse 23, I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Possession of the hedgehog. It's an interesting choice of animal. The intent is to show the devastation that will be caused to all the cities and the buildings to be completely devoid of people, and only the wild animals are there. You can look back at Isaiah 13, 21 and 22. Isaiah 13, 21 and 22, again, speaking of the wild animals living there. I thought it was interesting that they chose the hedgehog. Um, we don't have hedgehogs in any of the Americas. They don't reside here. Um, and because of that, we've kind of displaced that. And we have this fascination with groundhogs. Okay? So Groundhog Day, February 2nd, right? But the hedgehog, it's a small mammal. It's related to, but separate from rodents. Hedgehogs inhabit most of the ancient world, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Um, Australia has no hedgehogs, but New Zealand does because some person decided to take hedgehogs to New Zealand, and they are an introduced species. Not a good thing, but um, they have hedgehogs there. And I don't know if you've ever read much of the British newspapers, the British people are totally gaga over hedgehogs. I don't know what the deal is, but they absolutely love them. And there, there are like cartoons and, and commercials where the hedgehog is talking to people and you know, trying to sell used cars. And it, it, it's crazy. It's fascinating as I was digging around looking at hedgehogs and all this stuff starts coming up from the UK. It's like, you people are nuts. Um, so it mentions the hedgehog here as the wild animal. And Babylon is swept away with the broom of destruction. And as we talked about last week, we know the fate of Babylon having not been inhabited for 1,200 years now. And that ends the passage of Babylon, on Babylon. Going on to verse 24. An oracle concerning Assyria. So verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Isaiah opens an oracle about Assyria here. And Isaiah records that this is an especially strong statement by God, that God has sworn this to be. It was planned to be this way, that it shall be this way, and so it shall stand as having been that way. And Isaiah's oracle is triple guaranteed by God right here. Going on to verse 25, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. God promises to break all Assyrians in the land of Israel and of those in the mountains of Israel. In Judah, God will trample them underfoot. The image of the yoke is used here, and it's used in multiple places. The yoke is used normally as a vision or an implement of oppression. And we've seen this before in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 9.4. Isaiah 9.4 For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. And it's also in Matthew. Jesus speaks of the yoke. And he uses it slightly differently. So Matthew 11.29 and 30. Matthew 11.29 and 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's another place where the yoke is used, and this is a fairly famous one, famous biblical yoke. And this is in Jeremiah 27. So Jeremiah 27, and I'm going to grab a few verses here and there all the way through Jeremiah 27. Many of you will immediately know this story. 
So, verses 1 and 2. This message came to Jeremiah from the Lord early in the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord said to me. Make a yoke and fasten it on your neck with leather straps. So Jeremiah the prophet does this, and he walks around Jerusalem with this yoke on his neck. And he's making a statement about what God has told him to say. And so this is what Jeremiah has to say. Verses 8 through 10. Verses 8 through 10. So you must submit to Babylon's king and serve him. Put your neck under Babylon's yoke. I will punish any nation that refuses to be his slave, says the Lord. I will send war, famine, and disease upon that nation until Babylon has conquered it. Do not listen to your false prophets, fortune tellers, interpreters of dreams, mediums, and sorcerers, who say, the king of Babylon will not conquer you. They are all liars, and their lies will lead to your being driven out of your land. I will drive you out and send you far away to die. Continuing on into chapter 28. Chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. One day in late summer of that same year, the fourth year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, Hananiah, son of Azur, a prophet from Gibeon, addressed me publicly in the temple while all the priests and the people listened. He said, This is what the Lord of the heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. I will remove the yoke of the king of Babylon from your necks. Continuing on, verses 5 and 6. And Jeremiah responded to Hananiah as they stood in front of all the priests and the people at the temple. And he said, Amen, may your prophecies come true. I hope the Lord does everything that you say. I hope he does bring back from Babylon the treasures of the temple and all of the captives. Skipping down to verse 10 through 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and broke it in pieces. And Hananiah said again to the crowd that gathered, This is what the Lord says, Just as this yoke has been broken, within two years I will break the yoke of the oppression of all the nations now subject to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. With that, Jeremiah left the temple area. Sometime later verses 15 through 17. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to Hananiah, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but the people believe your lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You must die. Your life will end this very year because you have rebelled against the Lord. Two months later, the prophet Hananiah died. So sometimes yokes are very, very important things not to be overlooked. Verse 26, Isaiah 14, 26. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. This is the first of two verses that are the concluding statements that began way back in Isaiah 13:1. God proclaims through Isaiah that the purpose is proclaimed in the whole earth. And this is the hand of God being stretched out. Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts is purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So if God has purposed this to be, who is able to annul what has God has purposed? None. There is none who can annul God's purpose. And God has stretched out his hand. And who is able to turn back what God has sent forth? None. None are able to stop what God has sent. And this ends the oracle 
against Assyria. This happened in about the year 722 BC. Next, Isaiah proclaims another oracle from God. And this one is against Philistia, against the Philistines. Verse 28, an oracle concerning Philistia. In the year that King Ahaz died, came this oracle. So the interesting thing here in verse 28 is six years have passed from the previous verse. King Ahaz dies in 716 BC. A comment here about calendar years as well. This, I didn't know this. The months are determined by the phases of the moon. The word month, of course, is derived from the word moon. Moon, month, month, okay. As you might be aware, Israel and Judah did not agree on very many things. Amongst them were the calendar. All right. So, as a kid, I remember being taught the names of the months, right? September, October, November, December. And I'm going, wait a second, everything's off by two. September the 7th, October the 8th, November the 9th, December the 10th. So it turns out that the old calendar was set up so that the first month is March. And the reason is, Easter almost always happens in March. And this is when the Hebrew calendar begins. So March is supposed to be the first month. So that's the way Judah celebrates it. The new year is the Passover, okay? And January and February are the 11th and 12th months in their calendar. However, if the lunar cycles slide Passover into April, the Jews do a funny thing. They have a leap month, okay? They insert a whole month into their calendar in order to make this fit. Okay. Israel, however, celebrates the new year in September with the harvest, not in March at the beginning of spring. Okay, and recall, this, is, this happens when King Ahaz dies in 716 BC. Ahaz was a very evil king. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to Molech by burning the boy to death. This is very strictly forbidden by God. Leviticus 18.21. Leviticus 18.21. Do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech, for you must not bring shame to the name of your God. I am the Lord. God pronounces this sin as detestable. And after Ahaz dies, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, passes a decree that the priests remove all the impure and sacrilegious things from the temple, the very things that Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, had brought into the temple. And in fact, there were a bunch of other things that were in there that weren't supposed to be there as well. It takes the priests 16 days to remove all the evil items from the temple. <clears throat> Verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a, fly, a flying, fiery serpent. Philistia is oppressed by the Assyrian Empire, just as Israel and Judah are. The Assyrian king here is unknown. It's possibly Til Tilgath-Pilser III, who died in 727 BC, or this is speaking of Sargon, who died in 705 BC. It's probable it was Sargon, as he was deposed, and then he was murdered later by his own sons. The mention of the fruit will be a fi flying fiery serpent is a sign that even though Assyria is defeated, it's a temporary respite. 
the Assyrian oppression shall continue. Verse 30, the firstborn of the poor will graze, and the needy lie down in safety. But I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant it will slay. The poor and the needy here are those who long for righteousness from the Lord. And Assyria's root shall be destroyed, and there will be no remnant. Verse 31. Wail, O gate, cry out. O city, melt in fear. O Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in its ranks. Cries of anguish and fear from all the people of Philistia. The smoke from the north is the invading Assyrian army, which is strong and swift. Verse 32, what will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of his people find refuge. The Philistines attempted to form an alliance with Israel and Judah to oppose the Assyrians. But the word of the Lord is clear. Judah is to not form an alliance with any of the kingdoms of man. Judah will rely solely on the strength of God alone. And this ends Isaiah's oracle against Philistia. And that's the end of chapter 14. Chapter 15, verse 1. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Here in verse 1, this oracle of judgment against the kingdom of Moab is to believe to have been from about 715 BC. This, the Assyrian king at that time is Sargon the Great or Sargon II, actually. And he attacked and caused widespread destruction to Moab. The city of Ar and the city of Kir were both destroyed. Kir was a city of trade on the Amman River, and Kir was the capital city of Moab. Moab is a nation state that faces the Dead Sea across from Judah. And it's at the southern end of the Dead Sea there's quite a bit that you actually know about Moab because you've seen it in movies, okay? Um, Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. The, the, the stone city, that palace, is actually Petra, which resides in Moab. And it, in fact, that whole area is carved into the cliff faces. The entire city was carved into the cliff faces. And um, the very southern end of that is actually still inhabited. There's a village that's still there. We'll, we'll talk about that here in a moment. There's a whole long piece that I'm going to inflict on you in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 48, and again, I'm pulling bits and pieces. Jeremiah 48 verse 1 begins concerning Moab thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel woe to Nebo another city of Moab for it is laid waste Kirathiam is put to shame is taken down the fortress is put to shame and broken down the renown of Moab is no more in Heshbon they plan disaster against her come let us cut her off from being a nation also you madmen shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. Give wings to Moab, for she would fly away. Her cities shall become a desolation with no inhabitant in them. Moab is put to shame, for it is broken. Wail and cry. Tell it beside the Arnon that Moab is laid to waste. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord. Thus far is the judgment on Moab. I think that last one is interesting because Moab is supposed to be one of the nation states that are deposed by the Israelites when they take over their promised land. And yet, 
God says, I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days. Ezekiel 25, 8 through 11. Prophecy against Moab and Seir. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir said, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the other nations. Therefore, I will lay open the flank of Moab from the cities, from its cities on its frontier, the glory of the country, Beth Jesimoth, Baal Melon, and Kirathion. I will give it, along with the Ammonites, to the people of the east as a possession, that the Ammonites may be remembered no more among the nations. And I will execute judgments upon Moab. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to give you these last two so you can go look them up and read them on your own. Amos 2, 1 through 3. Amos 2, 1 through 3. And Zephaniah 2, 8 through 11. Zephaniah 2, 8 through 11. I have an admission to make right here. I had to go look up where Zephaniah was because I did not know. I knew approximately where it was, but you know, I didn't want to go through a thousand pages to figure out where Zephaniah was. Okay. So fundamentally, here's what it is. The kingdom of Moab is in the south of modern, jo of modern Jordan today. We all know the images of the palaces carved into the cliffs, the city of Petra, literally rock in Greek. And the name in one of the local dialects there, I immediately recognized because I have a friend who is from Jordan. And the name of that city in the Moabite language is Batars. And my friend's last name is Batarsa. And the funny thing is, it's singular. So it means one rock, one, one stone, okay? Do you know, and, and by the way, he's a professor of physics at, at uh, Cal State Sacramento, this guy, good friend of mine, Sam Batarsa. And uh, do you know what the name one rock is in German? Einstein. And so I give this guy a hard time because he teaches physics. He's got a PhD in physics, and he teaches physics in the university. That he has the same last name as Einstein. He laughs every time I bring it up. It's hilarious. <clears throat> The city there was po first populated, the Petra was first populated in about 7,000 BC. The kingdom was founded by the descendants of Lot, and it was laid waste in 715 BC, and the few inhabitants after that dwindled off until the city was left empty by about 600 AD. And it was lost. It was a completely lost city until it was rediscovered in 1812 by a German explorer. And this guy wanders down this canyon and all of a sudden there are all these rock carvings on the canyon walls. That was another half a day that I lost reading this guy's account of all this, you know, as he's walking through this canyon and discovering all this stuff. He was so excited, you can imagine. Back to Isaiah, okay, verse two. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibon, to the high places to weep, over Nebo and over Medeba, Moab wails. On head, every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. What's that? <laughs> okay, so here it is. There's a long, lengthy discussion here, digression for historical, historical content, because the mention of Dibon, the village, by the way, is still there, called Dibon today, all right, in, in Jordan. And, and in fact, um, Wikipedia, if you go to the Wikipedia site for this village, there's a photograph of the village next to the ruins. It's fascinating. 
Okay. Dibon was a place to the north of the Amman River. Nearby was a high place, which was where the worship of the god Chemosh took place. Now here's where things go incredibly bad. Solomon built an altar to Chemosh on a high place near Jerusalem, off to the east of the temple. Okay, he does this in about 960 BC. And all this garbage starts going into the temple of God with Solomon. And it's there for almost 400 years in the temple. And it's not until King Josiah rips all that stuff out. Okay. First Kings 11, 7 and 8. First Kings. 11, 7 and 8. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. It was not until King Josiah, about 630 BC, that these desecrations by Solomon were removed. This length of time as I mentioned, was almost 400 years, about 360 years, maybe a little bit longer. The Assyrian exile was during this time, about 757 BC to 717 BC. So 2 Kings 23, 2 Kings 23, that whole chapter is about Josiah's reforms, okay? And I'm going to rip out a few verses here and there. So this is 1 through 4. When the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him, and the king went up to the house of the Lord, and all with him, all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all the priests, and all the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. He didn't, ha he didn't have one. And the, the king stands on the portico of the temple. And he reads this to the people. I can only imagine what that must have been like. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for the Ashtoreth and the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. One of the verses I left, passages I left out in here was how they slaughtered all the priests of, of, of these, these false gods. And they left the bodies out to rot so that the animals would pick them clean. Then they picked up all the bones and they threw them on top of all this stuff to defile the places where this, this happened. Read what Josiah, listen to what Josiah does next. And the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or the kings of Judah. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. By the way, he dies at a young age. He dies, he's about 38 years old. He dies in battle. God is not done punishing Judah. 
In about 597, the Babylonian exile begins, and it was during that siege that Ezekiel witnessed God leaving the temple. Ezekiel builds this up. The entire book begins with this build-up from Ezekiel 1 to Ezekiel 10. And this build-up is leading up to God leaving the temple. Ezekiel 1, 26 and 28. 26 through 28. And above the expanse over the heads, there was the likeness of a throne, in the appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had appeared of his waist, I saw it was like gleaming metal, and the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. I I don't know about you guys. I, I read that, and the hairs on my arms stand up. This is just so vivid that what Ezekiel has to say. I jump forward now to Ezekiel 5. Ezekiel 5, 11 to 13. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things, with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. My eye will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and will ensheath the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. They shall know that I am the Lord that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Jumping down further, Ezekiel 10, 4 and 5, and 18 to 22. Ezekiel 10, 4 and 5, and 18 to 22. This is really important one. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, the temple. And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. God has left the temple. He's in the courtyard above the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out, and the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. The east gate. When Jesus comes into the temple on Palm Sunday, what gate does Jesus come in through? Jesus comes in through the east gate. These were the living creatures I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Chabar Canal, and I knew that they were cherubim. Each had four faces and each had four wings, and underneath their wings were the likeness of human hands. Now, as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Chabar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. God departs from the temple, and he has not been there since. God continued to speak to the people of Judah through the prophets until Malachi, who ended the Old Testament line of prophets in about 420 B.C. By the way, that verse also mentions Nebo. Nebo is a village with a mountain nearby, and Moses had climbed this mountain to look into the promised land beyond the River Jordan. There's another town mentioned there, the town of Mediba, 
which was five miles to the southeast. Deuteronomy 34.1. Deuteronomy 34.1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. According to Jewish tradition, the mountain near Nebo is where Moses died, and he is buried there. That verse also closes out talking about baldness and the shaving of the beard. And that is a custom of grieving, the shaving of the head. Verse 3. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares. Everyone wails and melts in tears. The wearing of sackcloth is also an expression of grief. I don't think our, our culture would view that the same if we all started showing up in burlap somehow. I don't think that would work. Jeremiah 4.8 For this put on sackcloth, lament, and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. Verse 4 Heshbon and Elilah cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. Heshbon and Elilah are the towns to the north of Nebo, about six miles away. Heshbon was captured by Moses and Israel. Numbers 21, 21 to 26. Numbers 21, 21 to 26. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through your land. We will not turn aside into field or vineyard. We will not drink the water of a well. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass through his territory. He gathered all his people together and went out against Israel to the wilderness and came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as Arnon. Jahaz is also mentioned. Jahaz is a town about 20 miles to the south on the Arnon River. By the way, I had to go look up this map of Moab because I'm going, there cannot be that many rivers near this place flowing into the Dead Sea. But they are. They're there. I had no idea. Verse 5. Isaiah writes, my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Elgath Shalishia. For at the ascent of Luhuth, they go up weeping. On the road to Oronam, they raise a cry of destruction. Isaiah has much compassion for Moab. Recall that Ruth was a Moabite. And she came from Moab. This was her homeland. And Isaiah takes pity on them for the destruction they must suffer. The Moabites flee to Zoar, just as Lot did long ago. Genesis 19, 23 to 30. Genesis 19, 23 to 30. And the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. 
And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out from the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Two of the cities from that previous verse that we talked about, Luhith and Horonaim, are lost cities. We don't know where they're at. <clears throat> I'm sure there's archaeologists out there in the sand still looking. Continuing on, verse 6. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered, the vegetation fails, the greenery is no more. Nimrim here is also a lost city, possibly with a stream to the southeast of the Dead Sea. A stream called Nimrim flows past the city, the ruins of the city of Gomorrah. Verse 7. Therefore the abundance they have gathered and what they have laid up they carry away over the brook of the willows. The brook of the willows here is thought to be the Zered River between Moab and Edom. Moab is to the south of, uh, sorry, Edom is to the south of Moab. The river there is about 40 kilometers long and it's a year-round stream and the waters are used for irrigation of fields even to this day. I go look up the river Zered, and there's these pictures of all these farms. It's like when you drop down out of Blythe, and you drop down into the city of Blythe, and all of a sudden there's all those, those farms next to the Colorado River in the middle of the desert. I, this is what this photo reminds me of. Verse 8. For a cry has gone out around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglaim. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. Elim is a village in the southeast at the edge of the plains of the Dead Sea, up against the mountains to the east. Beer Elim, literally the well of Elim, is on the south of the Zered River, where the stream flows out of the mountains into the plain to the south shore of the Dead Sea. Verse 9. For the waters of Dibon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Dibon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Mention of Dibon again, the home of the god of Chemosh. God punishes Dibon particularly for being the home of the abomination of Moab. But the lion reference here is a reference to Judah. And it's mentioned for the refugees fleeing west to Judah for asylum. Though Moabites go to the Jews for asylum. Next week, chapter 16 continues the distress and destruction that visits Moab. Bill's going to do that one next week. The oppressors of Judah here are destroyed utterly and completely. God assures this. Above all, we know that God has promised to save his people. <clears throat> we know redemption is coming, bought and paid for, for those who live under the promised son of David. Even if things go badly here on this earth, we still have God and we still have heaven. You can see how this lesson is for us. Again, we are the ones who are unworthy of God, and we know that. We follow this all along through Isaiah, to be the remnant and to heed the words of God, carrying the words of God in our hearts, being the remnant. And Jesus is here. You can see it at every turn of the page, calling to us. Jesus pays for our rebellion, all of this that we did. Jesus paid for all of that, and it's atoned for by Christ's death on the cross. Isaiah is pointing us back towards God. Isaiah keeps telling us, don't look at the Assyrian army. Look at Jesus. Isaiah is telling us to change the way we live in the world. He wants us to become more Christ-like. God loves us all. 
I look at the chaos in the world today, how this message sounds so much like the world we live in now. And I think of how I fail daily in who I should be as a Christian. Jesus knows that I'm not where I need to be yet. And again and again, I am on my knees asking him for forgiveness. Relying on God, looking to God's mercy and love. And I need that beyond all comprehension or understanding. I need God's power of forgiveness. God still chooses us. God, our Father. God's greatness will be there for us to see on that last day of the Lord when we all witness his greatness and his splendor. Let's pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, you are so great and we are so insignificant. Lord, you've kept your words spoken to us by Isaiah and handed them down through all these years just for us to have. Down through the ages, you've kept them just for us. Heavenly Father, we have been unfaithful, and yet you continue to hold us in the palm of your hand. You lovingly guide us with your words. Heavenly Father, hide your words in our hearts. We read the words of your prophets, Isaiah, Moses, Josiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, Zephaniah. Write your words deep down inside of us. Give us the lessons we must learn only from you, and guide us in your perfect path. Lord, we are so unfaithful and you are so true. Your plan of redemption is so perfect. Jesus, you die for us in our place to redeem us, to save us. You are so amazing. We love you. We bless you and honor you, and we praise the name above all names, the name of Jesus. Amen.